Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. No doubt most of you have heard the light bulb jokes that have been making the rounds for several years. The basic structure of these is for the joke teller to question his audience as to how many people of a particular profession or group it might take to change a light bulb. When the recipients are stumped as to the answer, the joke teller then gives the correct number and explains why. The humor typically comes in that the reason it supposedly takes so many people to do this changing of a light bulb task is that it reveals something of society's perceptions of that group or that profession's characteristics. Such jokes are usually pretty harmless. In most cases, even anyone who might be a member of that group or that profession can laugh along without being offended, usually agreeing that, yes, we are often like that. For example, how many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Three. One to call the electrician and two to mix the martinis. How many Jews does it take to change a light bulb? Just one. Don't worry about me, I'll just sit here in the dark. And finally, how many Lutherans does it take to change a light bulb? Thirteen. Six to complain to the pastor that they've noticed a burnout light bulb and wonder why he hasn't done anything about it yet. And another seven to hold a meeting of the board of trustees to determine if there's any money left for light bulbs in the budget. We chuckle at such humor because even though it greatly generalizes, it also captures a little bit of the underlying truth about who we are as human beings. Extending that concept to today's gospel lesson, I might ask you this. How many disciples does it take to catch a fish? The answer is, it depends. Is Jesus involved or not? You and I can't even begin to imagine the emotional, ro emotional roller coaster on which the disciples had ridden those 47 days between Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and his ascension to heaven 40 days after the resurrection. What incredible swings they must have experienced between highs and lows and back again several times. Just try to put yourself there for a moment thinking that the man you were following was going to be installed as the new ruler of a new Israel, throwing off the heavy yoke of the hated Romans and their puppet king, Herod, being reminded instead during that week that your leader was going to be taken prisoner, suffer and die, being told that he was going to rise again from the dead, seeing all that he had spoken come to pass in great and vivid detail the fear and the turmoil of his arrest, his torture and his death, and then the euphoric joy at seeing him alive several times, still bearing the scars of the wounds that he suffered, and then the anxiety of being separated from him in between those post-resurrection appearances. The disciples had been told during some of Jesus' early post-resurrection appearances that he would go before them to Galilee, the area where it all started those many months before. Later, they would be instructed to return to Jerusalem and to wait there, where they would be given power from heaven, 
a power that they would need to remain firm in the faith and to convey God's message of salvation both near and far. But now, during one of those lulls or downtimes in this frenzy of amazing events, seven of Jesus' disciples find themselves back on familiar ground, gathered together on the shores of the lake that they knew so well. It was here that some of them had made their living as fishermen up until three years before. It was here that Jesus had called some of them to follow me, and they obeyed. Along its shores he had taught and healed, fed and forgiven. Upon its surface he had walked, and from beneath its depths he had on a previous occasion give a wondrous catch of fish, so great in number that the nets had broken and it took the crews of two boats to haul it all in. In the stillness of this evening, though, these seven disciples find themselves quite alone, even in each other's company. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and two others. The denier, the doubter, the scoffer, two connivers, and two unknowns. As he is so apt to often do, it is Peter who first speaks and acts. Whether he is simply seeking solace and comfort in that which is familiar to him, or if he's unconsciously trying to return to the life that he had before it had all gotten so complicated, we can't say for certain. What we do know is that they still had possession of a boat and fishing tackle, and at least three of these disciples in the group of seven had the expertise to use them. Yet despite having all of the right equipment and the skills and knowledge and experience, their efforts at catching anything at all proved to be quite futile. Tired and frustrated, they head back to the shore, perhaps wondering if their fishing abilities, like the presence of Jesus, was now something that they'd only see and have occasionally. But just when their hopes near their lowest, Jesus stands before you, before them. Have you any fish? he asks. In a way, this is almost a, a veiled insult. These disciples had been told at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that they were to have left behind their boats and their nets and to follow Jesus in catching men rather than fish. And now they have to admit publicly to this stranger on the shore the very real truth that they can't even catch fish anymore. What good are we? They might have asked themselves. What's the use? Yet this stranger on the shore does not laugh at them for their shame and their futility. Instead, he offers some clear direction and some quiet confidence. Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. This time, there's no hesitation. This time, there's no protest from Peter as he'd had years before, saying, Master, we've labored all night and haven't caught anything. The disciples obey, and their obedience is rewarded, and it unexpectedly bears fruit, or rather, fish. So miraculous is this turn of events that immediately the eyes of John are opened, and he is led to realize that it is Jesus himself on the shoreline. John gives voice to this discovery, and Peter can't hold himself back from yet another impetuous act. He throws on his clothes and throws himself into the lake. This time there is no, if it really is you, Lord, command me to walk across the water to you. This time there isn't, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. No, 
This time, Peter's fears and doubts have completely vanished, and his desire to be with the Lord drives him headlong into the headwaters of the Jordan. A confidence born of faith and sealed in his witnessing of the resurrected Christ brought Peter through the waters and placed him in front of his Savior. Yet pleased as he must have been to have Peter show such eagerness and such devotion, Jesus doesn't leave Peter to linger in wonder in front of his resurrected body. Peter is not to abandon his fellow believers in their struggles with the overflowing nets. Bring some of the fish you have caught, Jesus instructs. So Peter returns to the boat and assists his brethren in hauling ashore the full net. It is as if Jesus had said, I told you before that you would be catching men, not fish. But since this is the last time that you'll be going fishing on the lake before I send you the power to do that, I'm going to make sure that it's a memorable one. Enjoy this sort of fishing while you can. Well, it might be indeed difficult for us to relate our own circumstances to those of these first century fishermen. We are often much like Peter and these other disciples. When we don't feel or see the Lord directly involved in our lives in a very visible way, we are prone to fall into old worldly habits. We get distracted by what we know and what we feel comfortable doing, rather than hearing his words, as the Father has sent me, so also I am sending you. We strive so hard to provide for ourselves, rather than casting our nets to him, we cast them aimlessly along the surface of the deep, or we fruitlessly fish in the same spot over and over again, rather than trusting that he will give us all that we need, and then some. And too often, in an eagerness to have a more close, more personal relationship with our Lord, we leave our fellow Christians to struggle against their burdens, forgetting that our Savior had said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. For all of these shortcomings, whether as a weakness from faith or as selfish ambition, repent. Repent for failing to see how the Lord works clearly in your life every day and in countless ways. Repent for forgetting to give thanks for even more in countless ways that He does things for you that you do not see. Repent of letting the world lead you into choosing what to do rather than letting God's Word of guidance rule in your heart and your mind and your actions. Repent of not trusting that He will provide for your every need according to His good and His gracious will. Repent for thinking that your survival and your success depends on what you alone do. And repent when you have turned away from your brothers and sisters in Christ and not lived up to your responsibilities to be a good neighbor to them, refusing to take up your share in the responsibilities and burdens of this fellowship with your time, with your efforts, with your finances. Return to the boat, to the ark of the church, and put yourself into the task of bringing ashore the incredible bounty that the Lord has placed in our nets. Easily grasp if each of us is willing to take a hold of these nets and pull hard with the strength that He gives us. The net won't break because, because God's Word can never be broken. And that Word always accomplishes what He would have it do. How many saviors does it take to change everything? Only one. For he is the Son of the living God, and the one who has accomplished all things, 
so that you might receive eternal life, not by your own doing, but by his work on the bloody cross and by the power of his resurrection. Having worked so hard in the darkness and gaining nothing of worth, come into the light of a new Easter dawn. See your Savior standing, waiting for you. Cast your net on the right side, and he will give you what it is you're looking for. Bring the catch that he's provided you to the place where he will be found. And as the culmination of it all, receive the meal that your Savior has prepared for you, his body and his blood given into death on the cross, but raised again to new life so that you may believe. It is indeed a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that he provides us for the forgiveness of our sins and for the strengthening of our faith. Come, have breakfast. In his holy name, amen.